welcome to another session. Actually, we think this might be our final session, uh, actually our penultimate session together as we uh, embarked on Revelation chapter 21 and ch chapter 22. And uh, boy, what a beautiful way to conclude uh, not only the book of Revelation, but the entire uh, corpus of those 66 uh, the beautiful books that tell us about God's mission in the world. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that um, in this session. Before we get there, I thought I'd, I would mention that we didn't want to just simply fly through chapter 20 like we did yesterday uh, or in our last session. Um, we got so excited about the, the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ that uh, we uh, it seemed like we almost dismissed Satan's defeat in the final battle, as well as the, the final judgment. But as we've been talking about the book of Revelation over these past several sessions, we keep coming back to this idea of a spiral, uh, a recapitulating. And we certainly see that in chapter 20. Um, it, what, the, what John is describing doesn't take us by surprise because these are images that we've heard before. And so in many ways, uh, chapter 20 tells us a little bit more detail in the events that we have already seen uh, uh, portended in uh, John's vision. And uh, so we didn't spend a lot of time there. But we do want to just make the comment that uh, as we would look even more deeply into chapter 20 and the defeat of Satan, as well as the judgment, we might go back to uh, Revelation 19 to see where John is introducing some of those same ideas uh, uh, previous to this. And in some ways, that's what we're going to see again in this session as we get into Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, the, John seems to be setting up Revelation, these final two chapters, in a way that's similar to the rest of the book, where he initiates with a, a description of things that are going on, and then he uh, almost extrapolates the, those, embell not embellishes, but he gets into more detail about what it is that he's talking about. And so we see that same type of recapitulating here in verses, or in chapters 21 and, and 22. But guys, what an encouraging two chapters to uh, end a study on in the book of Revelation. What are your thoughts as we're getting into these final chapters? I am excited for more than just the fact that we're coming to the end of the book. And actually, I'm kind of sad we're coming to the end because uh, our studies and our conversations have just not only been rich, but enriched my own understanding of Revelation. But it is an exciting conclusion because we've reached uh, the finality of, in terms of looking ahead, the end of this age, when there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain and disappointment, that all, all that is wrong with this age will be wiped away. As uh, N.T. Wright says, all, rights, all wrongs will be put to right. And uh, I, I think it's just amazing. It's mind-blowing. I think of C.S. Lewis's conclusion to the last battle and uh, just the words that he puts to it. If you don't mind, I could read a couple of those sentences because uh, it, it almost makes me want to cry with joy and anticipation. Mm -hmm. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I, I feel like that is kind of the last thing we could say about Revelation. and. I think as, as beautiful as C.S. Lewis's words were with regard to that story, they don't even cast a shadow in comparison to what we have in Scripture, and particularly this last book 
So it, it's just exciting, all the things that we've come through, we've learned, and the hope that I hope all of us have been imbued with, the, the hope of the kingdom of God that is and is coming and will never end. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, that we've had the luxury of taking our time to to go through this and to hopefully get into some of the more nuanced uh, uh, visions that we see and the images that we see and uh, th those fantastic descriptions. And yet, as I think about the first century believers who were in the midst of experiencing uh, the very difficult times, that, I mean, you could almost uh, sense that, boy, they wanted to keep going and see where John is going with this. And and uh, the, the utter excitement they must have had when they got to chapter 21 to uh, finally see, wow, this is how it's going to be. And, uh, and what a sense of encouragement that must have been to them. I have a great sense that not only have we come to the end, but we get a full picture of the literary artistry of John. He, he has brought us back to where we were uh, at the beginning, but from a very different perspective, obviously the perspective of the end. And I'm thinking of how the original audience would have received this. I know that as I did my reading and my preparation for this podcast, that I came away with a great sense of, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this wonderful. The tone is so different. Um, we, we have resolution, and every good story has resolution. We, we've had climaxes along the way, but now here we are finally at the end, and it's a great encouragement. So I, I think that something else that really makes me happy is that we see a lot of what has been mentioned before and a lot of what is mentioned in the Old Testament now comes to bear. And so it's actually much easier to interpret. It's not nearly as difficult. Uh, what a great challenge it was yesterday or in our previous session. And then some places along the way, we've actually scratched our heads and we've come up with theories and ideas and we've thrown some by the way and others we cling to. and. But but here, there's not much speculation. There's, there's a clear sense of where we are in the process of what is happening and how things will end. And so things start to be wrapped up uh, rather nicely, and, and I'm glad for that. Yeah, and isn't it neat how John wraps that up? Um, it, it's almost as if he's wrapping it up like he began. Uh, at the beginning, it was about Jesus, and at the end, it's about Jesus. And uh, and all through the book, we see these different portraits of uh, Jesus, and uh, just a beautiful, beautiful um, uh, learning about who Jesus truly is at this very moment that uh, that uh, we're thinking about him. So, would you like to get us right into the text? Would you like to read us through the first paragraph? Let's do that. Well, we're in Revelation 21, and uh, we'll read that the first two paragraphs here. John begins, and he says something familiar to us. We've seen this over and over again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And, at, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then, and then this is, I find this interesting. I don't know how significant it is, but it's common with John. He shifts from what he saw to now what he hears. And he says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for th these words are 
trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give them from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're given a picture that just defies the reality that any of us have experienced. Even we who are in the West who have had uh, moderately easy lives in comparison to uh, the brothers and sisters of the first century of those seven churches would have experienced. We can't imagine this, what this voice is declaring. It's, it's just beyond anything that we have experienced. I mean, of course you can imagine it in the sense of a movie and, and, and all that, but in terms of what we have experienced, this is beyond anything we could hope for in this life, in this age. So trying to put myself in the shoes of any of the people in the, of the seven churches to hear this in the face of what they're going through. Because remember, they're, they're likely reading this letter and things probably haven't improved much, mm -hmm. if not gotten worse. And so there's this great tension they probably find themselves in that this is too good to be true. Uh, there might be the temptation to cynicism. And yet the spirit gives this great promise and also a great warning at the end. Um, it, you know, putting this into context, right? We, we read verse eight, and of course, this is at the end of time. So all those who were in opposition to God, all those who had bought into the vision of Babylon, all their lives, uh, the living and the dead have been cast into uh, the, the lake of fire and sulfur. But for those who are reading this letter, or, or having it read to them, we consider again that not everybody in those churches were saved. Hence the warnings that Jesus gave each of them. So for them to hear this, this is like one last effort to bring the dead to life within the church. Hear this warning. Those who are cowardly, faithless, I don't know that it's an accident that those are the first two that we read. Because in a sense, those are likely the, the two great temptations that all of us would face. You know, we, we may not be tempted to go out and murder or, or live detestable lives or commit sexual immorality. But consider what many of these warnings to the seven churches had to do with. Enduring, persevering, not compromising, not essentially don't give in to fear. Don't be coward. Don't be faithless. So this is yeah. a, a real life warning for those who are hearing this letter read to them or reading it for themselves. Boy, I better put my trust in Christ. I better confirm my faith for myself and not just base everything on nodding my head when the preacher says amen. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that's a great point, and noting those first two of being cowardly and faithless, because as you mentioned, that's certainly what a, a big part of the theme of this book has been about, is trying to, to encourage the church to not be cowardly or faithless in the midst of all of these uh, trials that uh, they are facing and will face. I think John's purpose here in this chapter is to strengthen their faith, uh, their hope and their resolution to remain faithful to the Lord. He's he's like a preacher headed for the end, and he's trying to encourage them. And yes, he does give the warning, but the first thing he does is give them great encouragement 
And perhaps something that I may, I may not have really expected was then I saw a, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this phrase is debated among Bible scholars and theologians. Is it a remade earth or is it a totally new earth? I don't know that we want to get into that, but there is a difference that some people think one way about it and others uh, believe differently. Uh, But what an encouragement it, it is. Things are new. Things are different. They're not in their old situation. They're in a new situation. The end of all things has come. It is done. Uh, the fight is over. Uh, we, we have seen early, earlier the, uh, the precursor, the, the mentions of judgment. We cycled back to that again in this chapter. But I have to believe that these people were greatly encouraged by the description of the new creation. And by the affirmation that they received that now the so-called tabernacle or the tent of God is with men. Mm-hmm. That just as Jesus, who it is spoken of in John chapter 1, uh, says that he came and he tented, set up his tent. He tabernacled among us. Mm-hmm. But that was in his human Uh, form and identity. But now all of us get to live together with him as as the people of God, where he is and he is among us. I mean, what an encouragement. You know, there are a couple of things, Don. You mentioned the one, the debate um, about the new heaven and the new earth, whether or not these are uh, totally new creations or recreations um, and the differing opinions on that. Um, uh, it, it, but I think one, before we get to the, the, uh, city of Jerusalem, there's one other, uh, interesting geographic landmark, if you will, that John inserts here that almost seems out of the blue. And, and he says, and the sea was no more. Uh, why do you think he put that in there? I find it interesting. I think this is where it is helpful for us to remember where John was when he first received this vision. He is exiled on the Isle of Patmos, surrounded by an ocean. Um, I think I remember reading one commentator described it as the the sea was the walls of his prison. And now the sea is gone and he is no longer imprisoned. I don't know. It's it's an interesting uh, line in in this passage. Um, the sea is also chaos. Yeah, yeah, because it's not foreign to John. This is, uh, the, I think, the final time that he uses it, but not the first time that he makes reference to the sea. Right. Uh, although I'm a southern hillbilly by birth, uh, I am a <laughs> I am an adopted Florida boy, and I live just about 25 minutes from the ocean through residential traffic. So this can be quite disturbing to me. No more sea. I mean, I I love it here. But the picture of the sea throughout the Old Testament and through the ancient Near East was, as already mentioned, a place of chaos and a place from which comes all sorts of demonic and uh, beasts who are against God and against his ways. And I think in the nature of apocalyptic, what he is probably doing here is reminding us that that source of opposition to God and that chaos that comes from demonic influence and satanic rule has no place in this new heaven and earth. And I too, I wonder if this is another one of John's juxtapositionings here. So often when we meet the word, in English at least, of earth, we think of a planet. But I wonder, I mean, John's not thinking necessarily of the planet earth. Uh, He might be thinking more in terms of land, that uh, the the land has passed away and, and the sea is no more. 
uh, con contrasting those two uh, with each other. Well, and, and that reminds me that all creation groans. Mm -hmm. And in here we see the end of the redemption for the physical universe. Uh, creation now is no longer going to groan under this burden of sin. It is remade. It, it too reaches its final redemption. The new Jerusalem, what strikes you about this? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm just reminded of Beale making reference to, uh, to similar imagery in Isaiah. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, recapitulation of Isaiah here. The imagery of, you know, behold, the old is gone, the new has come, uh, the former things have passed away. Do you not perceive it? Uh, well, there's no way we can't perceive it in this book because it is everything. It's not just a, a wilderness out there where water is start, suddenly starting to stream. Uh, this is the whole of creation. The whole, and, and I don't know whether John had a landmass in mind or, you know, we could argue till the cows come home whether he had a concept of the earth as a planet, but. Um, in my understanding of this whole thing, it, it, it's not just our planet. It's the whole of the universe. All of creation is being remade in some way, shape, or form. And so what do we, uh, what are we supposed to come away with from this, this description? I mean, it speaks to God's sovereignty, not just in terms of having a plan to bring salvation, but being sovereign in the sense that he has brought it. It's being completed. Yeah. He who began a good work is completing it. Well, I agree. Note the juxtaposition between the city and made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. All right, so we've seen this before, haven't we? We we talked about two women and two mm -hmm. cities. So we have the identification of the prostitute as the city of Babylon. And we have the bride of Christ referred to here as the New Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And I just think this is part of what makes reading John in this uh, book, so beautiful, you know, so interesting that he's, he's turning our eyes to the fact that this is where we've been headed all along, and now we're here. The time uh, for uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, we read about that, uh, didn't we, in chapter uh, 19. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once again, recapitulation, we focus in a little bit more, and, and this is what we have. So, I, and he says, look, uh, I'm reading a different version other than the ESV right now. It's called the net. So, uh, the net says, look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people. Uh, and by the way, that should ring all sorts of Old Testament bells. Mm -hmm. And God himself will be with them. Uh, quotation from Isaiah 25, 8. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. I mean, what mm -hmm. a beautiful, beautiful wrap-up. Yeah, it mm -hmm. is. And, I, I, you know, when I read this, I wonder, haven't we met this before, I mean, you made reference to Jerusalem and and the bride and how we meet um, the the bride of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And here, this phrase, "He will wipe away every tear from their eyes." We also meet uh, previously. We met previously in Revelation chapter seven, verse seventeen. And I've wondered if this is also a recapitulating of that events that were happening in that sixth seal in Revelation um, chapter 7. And what just by way of re reminding us, 
the uh, the hundred and forty four thousand are enumerated in Revelation chapter seven, and then in verse seventeen, uh, he he writes, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there's another correlation there between chapter seven and chapter twenty one where it speaks of those who are thirsty, which we haven't really gotten to yet, but we will in just very shortly here. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, it seems to point out the nature of the hermeneutical spiral, the recapitulation and coming back to things that he has mentioned before. I would say great observation. Yeah, we'll make one other observation, perhaps not as great. Uh, as we go on to uh, verse six, we read it a moment ago. It is done. This is the, something that John's already declared, or Jesus has already declared in Revelation sixteen, verse seventeen, after the seventh, uh, this, the seventh bowl. It, he makes the same declaration. It is done, yeah. and so it makes me wonder, you know, if in part. What we're seeing in this part of chapter 20 is some recapitulating of the sixth and the seventh uh, mm -hmm. septets, uh, whether it would be the seals or, or the bowls. Well, it, it is, uh, it's a stressing of the fulfillment of God's promises and plans. Uh, it is the fulfillment of his judging the ungodly. It is his fulfillment of judging Satan and all spiritual opponents. Uh, and, and it should, in many ways, take us to Jesus on the cross. It is finished. Yeah. Um, it's the same notion. Here, everything is finished for sure. Um, the fulfillment of... Uh, Paul's words, the old is gone, the new has come. And uh, it's, it's, again, this amazing picture that is beyond our own experience. We can't imagine what the old truly passing away and the new coming will look like. We have these words in promise. They're our hope. Again, linked with what comes after. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, Jesus is the one who who conquers. And this is also a fulfillment of the promises made to the seven churches. Um, the he who overcomes, I will give X, Y, Z. Um, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. It's incredible. Well, and, and especially so we think about how these seven churches and the people who were a part of them uh, would think and how they would feel when they hear this. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're obviously sensing a wrap up. Um, uh, someone said that they sat down to read the book of Revelation cover to cover, and it took about an hour and 13 minutes. Uh, they may have been on the edge of their uh, seats for, for this long, but now as they hear this, you know, there's, they're perking up, they're leaning forward and they're saying, well, Hey, it sure sounds like we're getting to the wrap up here. Um, but I, I think that they're saying, wow, they're probably already beginning to think back to the challenge that they received at the very beginning. They're not missing the point that this is the Alpha and Omega who they heard of and saw in chapter one. Mm -hmm. And as, as they head toward this wrap up in the reading of this text in a, a public setting, um, they're going, they're starting to feel pretty good. And then they get to verse eight. Mm -hmm. You know, we've already gone there. And once again, this is that warning. John is letting them know this is an either-or decision. It's a binary decision. Um, if you're with me, you're with me forever. Uh, if you're not, uh, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, 
that is the second death. So uh, very stern warning, but preceded with a lot of beauty. And again, just the stark contrast between those two. I, uh, I read that second half of verse six, the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And I'm reminded of Isaiah 55, uh, the first verse or so. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So we we see these uh, echoes or allusions back to the Old Testament, even in the new creation. The people who are receiving this letter for the first time would likely catch that. Well, and mm-hmm. doesn't it also take us back to John seven thirty seven, the gospel? Mm-hmm. On right. the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and shouted out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. And then there's the explanatory comment. Now, he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive, for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But the, these themes through scripture woven through, coming back and again and again, again and again, uh, giving us, making us aware that this invitation stands, you know, all people groups, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your cultural background, uh, the door is open. If you're thirsty, come, come and drink. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's beautiful. That, that's good news, folks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is good news. Well, Don, you got to start it on Jerusalem and the in the new city, the holy city, that where God is going to dwell uh, with His people, and we see John once again telescoping in on what that new city is going to be like, beginning in verse nine. Do you want to pick it up there? Sure. Um, reading verse nine. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven final plagues came and spoke to me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Uh, To make the note here, once again, he takes us back to the the cups or the bowl judgments that have already been poured out, the the final phase, so to speak, of God's judgment. Uh, But we see a connection here. He hasn't moved on to another topic. He's refocused the lens and we're seeing either the results of what has happened or um, what is a consequence of what has been done. So he took me away in the spirit, and we saw that before, didn't we? Is that John chapter 5, verse 1? To a huge majestic mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. The city possesses the glory of God. Its brilliance is like a precious jewel, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It has a high, massive, it has a massive high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates, and the names of the 12 apostles of the nation of Israel are written on the gates. There are three gates on the east side, three gates on the north side, three gates on the south side, and three gates on the west side. The wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Well, we have these details, and it certainly does sound like a city. I mean, all the, the this, this description is uh, sounds more like it's coming from an engineer than a wedding planner. But <laughs> I think what we, what we get out of the, these details is a description of the perfection that all the uh, stains and sin are gone, that everything that made the church, uh, the covenant people of God, unworthy to be the bride of Christ have been taken care of. And so we get this image of 
perfection, not because the church has perfected itself, but because God has fulfilled his promise and made the church the perfect bride through Christ and his death, uh, washed clean in the blood. There's a hymn in there somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, it, it strikes me that uh, the statement goes from, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And who is that? That's the church. Uh, now, what do we mean by the church? We mean all those who have come to faith in Christ alone. Uh, not those who are members of a congregation, a local church. Not people who are part of the Roman Catholic Church, and certainly not anyone that's a member of any uh, denominational church. He's describing those who trust in Christ, all of them from all of the ages. But and then, not to say and that, and I'm sorry, and not to say that there aren't those in those different denominations. It's just that those denominations are not the church that's envisioned here by John. That's right. Even a Presbyterian could be a member of this group. Can I get a witness? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's interesting that he introduces the bride, which we think of as a person. And then the description goes back to the city. The, this is a great clue that he is using uh, apocalyptic imagery symbolism to make his point. And, and David, as you already expounded, uh, this is uh, the complete, the totally complete and per the perfection of the church. And notice that it's comprised of not only uh, Jews, but also of Gentiles, of all people, of all ethne, of all people groups. And so, again, completion. You know, we, we've come to the end of something. We're seeing it. Yeah, and we see the hint of that in verse 24, by its light, uh, that is the lamp, uh, that is the lamb, Will the nations walk and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's almost a picture, at least in my mind, as, as I try to visualize this, it's almost a picture of these 12 gates uh, surrounding this, this city uh, opened in every direction, welcoming those who are, are a part of the Lamb's Book of Life. Every nation bringing their glory uh, to, to honor and glorify uh, Christ, the Lamb. There's a great importance here in terms of considering, remembering what was the, the purpose for which God created humanity to represent him to creation. Uh, we think back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, and they were given the responsibility for tending the garden, that is, really to uh, build the garden out to cover the whole of the earth and not just, you know, as we think of a garden limited in space and all of that. And here in this city, we see all of saved humanity from every tongue, tribe, and nation coming to this city that is the church, that is the bride of Christ. And so we are all going to be a part of this incredible representing of ourselves to God, reflecting his glory back to him. It's, it's a grand celebration. Um, you know, as Don has reminded us on many occasions, this will be an incredible worship, a time of worship. Um, and again, we, 
there are echoes of Revelation 7-9 here in terms of all these, these folks coming together, uh, of which we believe we will be a part because of God's promise. So it's not just some sort of theoretical promise. Uh, we are given these visions along with John so that we can be encouraged to know that we will take our place among those people entering in through those gates and reflecting God's glory back to himself. Again, just very exciting. Uh, and I would hope giving the people who first heard this uh, encouragement and strength to persevere and endure during whatever tribulations they would be experiencing as a result of being faithful to Christ. Well, John goes on and, and uh, gives us a bit more description of, of uh, the, the city and, and uh, we, we see its measurement. I think uh, we've alluded to the idea of perfection here. Uh, David, I think you mentioned that. Um, we see that the wall was built of jasper and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. I don't know what that means. Uh, the gold that I've seen has never been clear. Uh, the, perhaps there's something else here. Uh, I don't know. Um, and then he goes on, and the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And this seems to be uh, drawing our attention back to, to uh, Aaron's breastplate, uh, an illusion that he's given us already once before. Um, when we meet the the, uh, the 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 one who has uh, the, these beginning and ending jewels, uh, meaning Christ. But here it's interesting, and I don't know if this is something we want to get into, but it's just an in interesting observation. He does enumerate twelve jewels, um, and uh, as we compare those twelve jewels with. Aaron's breastplate, two of them are missing. Um, the diamond and the carbuncle, is that how you would say that? Uh, the jewel that was on Aaron's breastplate. And in their place is the chrysolite and the chrysoprass. What do you make of those things? Or do, do we uh, dare venture into making anything of them? I don't make much of them because in verse 9, he is telling us once again, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. But the description that he uses has to do with measuring and all of this. And so it's like a city again. The, the imagery is going back and forth. Notice that uh, it's width um, in verse 16 is 12,000 stadia. I, I don't think it's literally 12,000. I don't think we're looking at a city. I think what we're seeing is the number of completeness. Mm -hmm. uh, 12 to the thousandth degree. And then he measured its wall, 144,000 cubits. 12,000 times 12,000, the same thing that we saw with respect to the sealed witnesses of God. So I think that in the nature of apocalyptic, what he's getting to is that this bride of Christ, the church, is of such uh, immensity and grandeur and beauty and splendor. And who gets the glory for it? God gets the glory for it. Mm -hmm. Because then we, we go on to say, or, or to see, in, in, to read in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty. So our temptation is to think that, for example, in verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem. And again, this imagery between wife and city, and now you would expect, what would you expect to see in this new Jerusalem? You ex expect to see a temple, but you don't see a temple. It's the presence of God himself in verse 22. The Lord God, the Almighty, 
and the lamb. And again, the lamb is mentioned repeatedly here, much more here than previously. It's very much like we've gone back to chapter four and five. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think what we have here is an attempt to explain or to describe what is indescribable. Mm. The beauty of God's saving creation, the church. Mm -hmm. I would uh, say amen. <laughs> there you go. I would uh, agree with Don, and I would only add to that that just as the stones on the high priest's uh, breastplate were to serve as representations, reminders of the 12 tribes. And here I think these stones are representative of all the people of God, as it were. Um, but again, it, it, like Don said, it's, it's describing the indescribable. Uh, John is using word pictures to help his readers understand the beauty and the perfection, and at the same time, uh, the totality of God's people. Not one has been forgotten. They're all part of this bride of Christ. Yeah, I, I think what we have here is this attempt to, to say, look how, you know, God has been preparing. This is from the foundation of the world. And now we have this presented, the, the glorious bride of Christ. Uh, enough said for me there. Uh, notice the emphasis on the nations, verse 24 and verse 26. By its light will the nations walk. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. You know, once again, we return to the missiological theme that we've been tracing all through here. Uh, the beautiful description that the gates are open, the nations are flooding in, God is being glorified. Uh, you know, that this is the heartbeat of the missionary, isn't it? Mm. it? Should be the heartbeat of the whole church. Yeah. That that we're seeing the nations become a part of this rede redeemed body that brings ultimate glory to God mm -hmm. because of the work of the lame. Boy, that will be something to see, yeah. for sure. And of course, here we're not talking about geopolitical boundaries of nations, but peoples. Yes. Um, all these peoples will be coming. Well, we move on then to chapter 22. And uh, John encounters another angel. And he said, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life, and its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will they, there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You know, another image here of uh, completeness, of uh, the nothing will be lacking, um, uh, and just a you know beautiful, almost. Uh, re-envisioning of the garden in some way of, of what God had intended for humanity, it now is going to be complete. Yeah, we certainly uh, get that image. You know, the story of God and man begins in a garden of sorts, uh, and it ends in a garden of sorts. Um, this garden is very different in that, you know, where does the garden end and the city begin, or vice versa? Uh, but this is a better garden. Uh, it's not that humanity at this point is incapable of sin, it, but it's that we now know 
the dangers of sin and being fully redeemed and regenerate, uh, we have no interest in going there. You know, been there, done that, don't want the T-shirt. And so this garden and this city uh, have a, a, a brighter future, a better hope in front of them. Uh, so we, you know, the description that John gives that this this tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Um, I'm not entirely sure what kind of healing is needed at this point. And yet it, it gives this picture of God providing everything we will ever need. And what will be going on there, Don? Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if it just might be worship. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, Amen. we see that in verse 8, and we see it once again uh, in verse 9, uh, the final wrap-up of the worship theme. You know, as trying to look uh, and see what the Greek text might say about the healing of the nations for the purpose of the therapeion, the therapy, you know, our word therapy, English word therapy comes from that. I don't want to commit the etymological error here, um, but it, it does talk about unto the healing the uh, of the nations. So, you know, what what therapy do we need? What what will the nations need at that point? Uh, maybe this is another expression of God's ongoing provision for all peoples. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the fruit. You know, we typically think of eating the fruit. It's 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 good for you. It's provision from God. Um, and, and we see this in the garden. You know, maybe this is uh, is this the tree of life? You know, is it was. It was taken away from mankind, from humankind. Is this now the restoration of that? I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm just thinking out loud uh, with you about this. Well, one thing's for sure is that there is no discrimination here. It's all the nations are included here. All mm-hmm. will benefit from this healing. All benefit from the fruit of the, the tree, uh, the tree of life. All will be worshiping him. And, uh, and and boy, what a what a, a picture uh, that that is for us. And even thinking about where we are today uh, in many parts of the world, where there is still division between peoples, even among Christian peoples. Mm-hmm. And yet, in this picture, uh, that God is not discriminating against any any people. Uh, that all are included here to experience this uh this pleasure of worshiping him and uh and benefiting from his healing it's so striking to me that the imagery of garden is what's presented to us here uh as david already mentioned the the narrative the grand narrative of scripture starts with with people in the garden but it also amazes me that it, it's such a common idea that it even makes its way into our culture. And I, I'm going to make a reference back to when I was in high school. In the early 70s, my, my favorite rock group, Crosby, Stills, Nash Young, Taylor, and Reeves, they sang the song Woodstock, and their cry was, we've got to get back to the garden. <clears throat> and somehow I think that's the longing of the human heart. That to get back to a perfect place where we're in relationship with God, at least that's the import of the song, whether they realized it or not. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden, except we can't get ourselves back to the garden. Someone has to bring us into the garden. And the lamb has done it. Yeah. And he, he's made us his bride. And we together, all ethnicities, from every single place on earth. Now, not everyone, but those who will trust what was done on their behalf by the Lamb, that is his sacrifice, the giving of his life, his resurrection from the dead, the Christus victor, 
He is the one that he is the only one that can bring us back to the garden. Mm. And it's done. And you can be a part of it. This allusion to the tree of life, and I, I think it is the tree of life. I mean, I don't think we have any reason to doubt that. I don't know that there's any indicator in the language used that it would be anything but that. And I'm reminded of, there's allusions here to Ezekiel uh, 47, uh, 47 verse 12, I think it is. Actually, I'll just start at uh, verse 6. and. there was a man, and he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Enaglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. But here's the real kicker. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for fruit. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And uh, in my mind, it's just very incredible that, uh, you know, we get this language that's going here that echoes back to uh, Ezekiel in John's vision here. And we've also seen this before in the early part of the revelation uh, in the the oracle or the letter to Ephesus chapter 2 verse 7 he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God mm-hmm. I think that's a, a pretty good conclusion uh, to uh, the identification of that tree. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the, nation, the nations. It, it must be the tree of life. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful imagery. I know one commentator makes kind of a qualified guess, I guess, <laughs> but paints this picture that, you know, because so much time has passed, the tree of life is now many trees well i'm i'm struck by the next words uh, to be honest um because the angel is summing up all of this that john has seen and heard and he says and john writes and he said to me these words are trustworthy and true and the lord the god of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place so um, that strikes me here that this was not just for John to see and to hear, but it's for all of his servants so that they know what was going to take place. Uh, and these were trustworthy and true words uh, coming uh, in this vision. And as, as you mentioned, uh, I'll, I'll take note of the, the fifth the blessing, the fifth benediction in this book, verse seven, and behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so what does he mean by keeps? I don't think he means by by that to keep the book on the shelf, but uh, means to, to live it out. Mm-hmm. Blessed is the one who keeps or practices uh, the words of the prophecy of this book. When I see that, Don, I, I want to, it's like it's uh, Jesus is bursting now onto this scene in front of John and saying, behold, I am coming soon. Uh, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of the book. And how exciting that must have been for 
John to hear Jesus once again, reassuring him that he is indeed coming. I did say that there were seven blessings or seven benedictions in the book of Revelation. And so uh, this one in verse seven is number six. Uh, Number seven is uh, number seven of the benedictions or blessings is in verse 14. Mm. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And of course, Jesus reaffirms in verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then that blessing that uh, Don just read. In verse 16, John is reassured that once again, this is Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires Take the water of life without price. Just more of this remarkable image of uh, being in the presence of the Lord. And his grace. It's just such a a welcoming spirit. Um, God who doesn't need us, does everything for us in order that we would be welcomed into his presence. All we have to do is wash our robes. <laughs> but, I mean, there's, there's an importance to that. You know, we have to find our purity, our holiness in Christ and nowhere else. Uh, we are blessed by him, but we have to take ownership of that blessing. We have to find our identity in Christ and in his words to us. Uh, It's not enough to just hear them, right, Don? You had said earlier, uh, it's not enough to just listen to the words. We, We need to be, we need to receive them. We need to allow them, allow God's words to transform us through the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is only then that we can enter in. And I would like to just emphasize the promise. Um, In Scripture, we have what is often called an envelope construction or an inclusio, uh, meaning that something is said at the beginning but repeated at the end, and everything in between it uh, relates to that topic. And where we are right now in the text, right at the end, in verse 7, it said, And behold, I am coming soon. And then we read in verse 20, surely I am coming soon. And that tells us that his point, what he is trying to stress in this last uh, few verses is that Jesus is coming soon. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Uh, I know you've had the experience of preaching. But you you stand in the pulpit, and the topic is the return of Christ. And have you ever had this feeling, you know, I'm I'm going to say this, but everyone must think I'm crazy. You know, this is so countercultural. This is so unscientific. This is so over the top. And yet, this is what it says. Jesus is coming soon. And either we believe it or we don't. It it may make me sound like a fool in front of intellectuals. But this is where I'm going to stand my ground and say, I'm going to say it even if I get up in front of a crowd and I have to say, Jesus is coming again. And they laugh at me and they ridicule me and they, they talk me down. I'm just going to say, this is the truth of the matter. Mm. It, it all comes down to this. 
Jesus is coming soon. And are you ready? And he's told us how we can be ready, how we can come in through the gate, how we can get back to the garden. How can we be back in fellowship with God? And man, what a beautiful, beautiful wrap to this story of salvation history. Mm. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. 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 And a good way to wrap up that book. I did want to point out one other thing that we don't want to just skip over either. But Revelation begins with a blessing and it ends with a warning. And the warning is uh, something that we need to heed. Uh, Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Boy, that is quite a warning. And uh, I think for David and Don and myself, we're hopeful that we haven't added to or taken anything away from this book. But hopefully we have done uh, right by the Lord and and uh, have brought him honor and glory as we've been digging through this beautiful revelation uh, with you. And so as we have done in the past, we continue to do and invite you to join with us and doing theology and community. This has been a uh, wonderful time for us to be together. We have one more session together to sum up uh, some of our final thoughts. But uh, for now, uh, we hope that you'll interact with us on our discussion forum, and and, uh, we look forward to uh, learning more together about rediscovering Jesus through Revelation. 